If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's podcast time. John, do you like my, my looks? I think you're looking terribly fetching. I think it's it's by just off the five-a-side, our lads, five-a-side soccer team. It's your Euro 2020 look. I'm telling you, see, that's it. We're all getting, we're all, getting all Zidane as we get older. Zidane in your ass. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, the standard of the five-a-side, but it's the six-a-side up in UCD, isn't quite the Euros. You're bringing it down, are you? The Euros is kind of spectacular, isn't it? There's been some brilliant matches. But it's, it's also the sense of, you forget how brilliant football is when you take it out of that awful premiership yeah. world. You know? And you actually... Sky ruined football. Well, they did ruin football. Yeah. And, and they, well, they also made it kind of fashionable. I quite liked in the late 80s and early 90s when football was really unfashionable. Yeah. Like before the Spice Girls announced that they were into football. Do you remember that, right? And Britpop and all that shite. You know, when nobody talked about football. I actually remember going, I think it was in my final year in Trinity or maybe even the year after I left, like 88, 89, around then, and going to, you know, the Pav in Trinity, you know, the bar? The Pav, yeah. Pav, to watch, yeah. to watch the FA Cup final. And there was only myself and a mate of mine that nobody else was watching. Football really? was so unpopular. So unpopular. Really? And in the 90s, it became really popular again. Yeah. And well, then, I, I actually used to go to, I was a member of Fulham Football Club. You know that? You and three others, apparently. <laughs> it was great when they got to the premiership for the first time in ages. and Fleetingly. Very fleetingly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But they were the local team. But uh, my brother, Connor, tells the story of... Murphy, our friend, got us two tickets to a Champions League match, Chelsea and Barcelona. And these were like gold dust. Yeah. And uh, Seth and, and Dickie got two brilliant seats and, you know, were watching. And it was brilliant. It was one of um, Messi's first games, I think. Right. And watching 1957. This. <laughs> but there was a brilliant goal scored and Dickie's going, yeah, because he's a Chelsea fan. Yeah, he turns around to look at me and I'm facing the other way, kind of contemplating the crowd. Yeah. And he just said, Jesus, John, why are you at football? Well, that's when football died, when people like you started to go. <laughs> now, I remember around that period, actually it was, it was later, it was about 1996, 97, getting tickets to see Arsenal 
in the final of the UEFA Cup in Paris against, I think it was Real Zaragoza. Right. And remember David Seaman, the great Arsenal keeper, yeah. who was described, I think, by... He looks a little bit like Magnum P.I. He, he did. He did. He looked a bit like Paul McCulley, actually, our friend. Did he? Yeah. But, but yeah, he, was descri- <laughs> he, was, he was lobbed by a guy called Naeem from the halfway. Right. right? An yeah. extraordinary goal, right? But Ronaldinho, the Brazilian, yeah. uh, I think, described, did something similar for Brazil against England. And again, Seaman was lobbed when he was offline and described him as a whale with a ponytail, which I thought was a great expression because he was so slow. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about economics and the world. Indeed. And you know what I'm going to talk about this week, John? What has been very interesting, I have been watching, you know the way in Ireland we talk about politics and we get obsessed with British and American politics? Indeed. But actually the politics that makes most impact on Ireland materially is German politics because what happens in Germany sets the tone for what happens in Europe. And what you've seen this week has been the unveiling of the CDU, you know, Mrs. Merkel's party's Uh main economic blueprint. And what is extraordinary is the Germans are now fighting back against everything the ECB is trying to do. So there has been, remember we've talked about this, there's been a battle at the heart of Europe between the ECB, which as I told you before, has experienced an Italian coup d'etat, uh, yes, starting yeah, yeah. with Draghi, yeah. but now with Lagarde. So basically the fiscally, budgetarily incontinent people, <laughs> right? Think about incontinence and what it does to you, John. Slightly <laughs> no, leakage <laughs> all the time. So you have these targets of budget deficit, then you just leak a little bit. So oh, the fiscally so incontinent of France, Spain, Italy, you know, basically the Catholics, right? Right. Okay. And... They, they always go for more budget deficits, a little bit more spending, whatever. And then you have the Teutonic Germans who dig their heels in all the time. Why? Because you remember when we talked with Eric Lonergan recently? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two different perceptions of money. The Germans regard money as a public good that needs to be protected by treaties, which is why they had the Bundesbank, which is why they could never, ever spend more than they had, which is why they regarded money as the housewife. You yeah. know, this in, in German, yeah. in German lore, there's there's this idea called the Swabian housewife. And Swabia is a place in southern West Germany, and she's obviously quite frugal, right? right. So the idea is always, what would the Swabian housewife do? And for years and years and years, that's been the German approach, right? Then, of course, they it's give a bit, away. Bit like Cavan, is it? It's yeah, it's a bit like Cavan, yeah. So the Germans have created an establishment institution which is based on public frugality, right? However, over the years, and then they gave away their sovereignty to have the euro, yeah, right? The euro, yeah. Big deal for Germany, right? They gave away the Deutschmark. And what they hoped was that we'd all turn into little Germans, mm. right? All of us who took the euro, but yeah. that didn't happen. In, in fact, we became splendidly more stereotypical and we did all this with German money. Yeah, and when yeah. they came looking for their money back, it was all gone. Remember 2008, it's like, oh, it's all gone. So the Germans were kind of traumatized by that. And then in the last four or five years, the ECB, the institution that they set up to be a mirror image of the Bundesbank, has looked and felt more like the Bank of Italy mm. than the German Bank. Yeah. So spending money, what they call monetizing deficits, et cetera. And the Italians and the French and the Spaniards, the fiscally incontinent, were all very happy with this leakage. Now, the CDU have said enough, right? So their 
political blueprint for the election, which is what Germany's going to talk about for the whole summer, is we're going to go back to the Maastricht Treaty. The Maastricht Treaty is the treaty that said budget deficits can be no more than 60% of GDP, even though now they're about 160%. Right. Uh, sorry, debt GDP ratios can be no more than 60% of GDP, right? Which ain't going to happen anywhere. Budget deficits have to be less than 3% of GDP. And there has to be this enormous move towards fiscal consolidation. So they've gone back to the orthodoxy. And the, the battle lines now are drawn, not just within Germany, but what happens in Germany impacts on the rest within Europe, where the Germans, the CDU are saying, all this pandemic spending, all your bloody MMT, all your don't be worried about the rate of interest, spend whatever you want, all this stuff. The Germans are saying, you, what, das what is, is genug auf Deutsch. <laughs> that is enough, right? Das ist genug. But I was going to ask you, what, what is the German view of MMT? You know, they must be looking horrors. at Biden and scratching horrors. their heads. Horrors, horrors, horrors. So, so Germany is run by a cult when it comes to economics called Ordo Economics, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned this before. from the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, when the Germans terrified by monetary instability. Most people claim that their real fear was inflation, right, from 1923. Yeah. My sense is that inflation definitely was a fear, but also was excessive deflation. Because don't forget, Adolf Hitler came to power in a period of deflation. Yeah. The myth is he came to power in inflation in 1923. Yeah. In 1923, he was mooching around Munich, having his beer keller pooch, yeah. right? And writing Mein Kampf. He was a nobody. Yeah. He was in, a crap artist. Well, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Well, I, I he painted horses, didn't he? Yeah, like, well, I read a book recently on Hitler in his early days, in his youth, and they went on. See, I actually think he was also perhaps a little bit Asperger's because he was incredibly focused and he couldn't take criticism at all. And he thought his art was fantastic. But everyone else would look at him and go, that's crap. And it would drive him absolutely scatty, you know. Yeah. And, and that's when he and went he's going to go and, off and be, a, yeah. and, be a, and be a great patriot. But the, the background noise is always sold to people that Hitler is a product of inflation. Yeah. But actual fact, Hitler, Hitler's popularity was a product of deflation. Yeah. Where the Nazis really came to power between 1928 and 1932, when Germany went into a period of rapid deflation. That's when their polling went through the roof. Yeah. And by January 1933, he was in power, having come up with this fictitious coalition and, and all that sort of mm. stuff. But what the Germans always wanted there was monetary stability. That's why this is this is all again them, right? But my point is that. Germany is in for a summer of a debate between people who believe that orthodox economics is the way forward and people who believe that unorthodox economics is the way forward. It's the difference between the economics of the CDU, which is Mrs. Merkel's party, mm -hmm. and now they're going right back to basics, and the economics of the Green Party, which is basically we need a European New Green Deal. We need to decarbonize the, the German economy. The German economy is, I mean, Germany basically, in effect, for the last 40 years, has taken fossil fuel and turned them into cars. Yeah. That's the economic model, right? We'll burn, we'll create steel, we'll create cars, we'll basically, we'll, we'll hostage ourselves and hijack ourselves and basically lean ourselves towards the carbon economy. Mm. They have to wean themselves off that. And the economic debate 
is against that background. But can, can I just, and I don't want to keep going on about this or, or, or take us down a rabbit hole, but how is... John, you take us down a rabbit hole? <laughs> Never. But Merkel is, it's the end of Merkel's career at yeah. the moment. So Merkel is on the way out. So, but the new guy coming in, is, is Armin he... Lache, he's, well, what he's trying to do, right, he's trying to establish his own bona fides amongst the centre ground of German right. politics. And when you want to go in the centre of Germany, you have to go back to fiscal conservatism, monetary conservatism, mm. tradition, stability, don't rock the boat, steady eddy stuff. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to paint the Greens, who are his major opposition now, as fiscally loose, as a little bit too experimental, and as kind of dangerous to the right. German model. Right. So what I'm saying is we are in from a fantastically interesting summer of economic discussion in Germany. And Whereas the Irish media naturally focuses on what Boris Johnson said or Joe Biden said, it's all theatre. Yeah. But actually, yeah. because if the CDU view wins in Germany and it then percolates through to the ECB, even though the ECB is independent, Germany's still the Czech writer, we might get a rapid change in economic conditions in Europe. And the legacy of that or the implication of that is huge for lots and lots of issues. So let's talk about politics, German, Irish, European, over the next couple of minutes. Great. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So luckily, John, we have a real expert here to talk about politics. Thank God, Jesus, thank God. Kevin Cunningham. Kev, how are you? Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. It feels like uh, I'm due to get my vaccine uh, this coming week, I think. So yeah, pretty, pretty stoked That's your first that. job, is it? Be job number you one. You are but, but a youth. John yeah. and I are double jobbed. We're oh, out. Man. We're out. We can actually leave. We can leave. and bad, as Marla would say. Tell me, tell me, Kevin. Okay, I want to talk to you about politics I want to talk to you about, is the center dead? This is the idea. We were talking just before the break about the fact that German, the German center is back in the game. 
Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think the I think the center itself isn't dead. I mean, the the best example of this is probably the French regional elections, but in the case of Germany as well, uh, the Free Democratic Party is probably the party that's making the most moves in in the polls right now. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about the Green Party in Germany doing very well, and that is quite remarkable. And you know, if the Green Party did get the chancellorship, or it would be quite remarkable. But the FDP is the one that's actually moving right now, and it's it's coming straight into third place in Germany. In the French regional elections, which Can we I just saw, say for an Irish audience, the FTP were the progressive Democrats of Germany. Yeah. Right? If you remember the progressive Democrats, they were the sort of fiscal hawks, and they were very, they were small sort of, they used to call exactly. them a make-way party, but they, they were quite powerful for a while, because they could actually be the difference between the CDU and the CSU and or whatever. So they were like the PDs, weren't they? Are yeah, they, they were. They're, they're more fiscally conservative than Angela Merkel's party, you know. So they're, they're definitely to the right there, but also kind of the liberal type vibe about them. There's the French regional elections, which happened only relatively recently, and the results are, there's only the first round that's only uh, been counted, but it looks like Les Républicains has won that uh, by quite a substantial margin as well. And that's the centre-right party, the old party of uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, Francois Fillon last time we saw them. Jacques Chirac, is it Jacques Chirac? Jacques Chirac as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and Balladour and all these guys going back years ago. And and, and they won by a significant margin. Not only that, but also the Socialist Party in France, which was arguably the party that people thought was gone out the back door, also did relatively well. In fact, Emmanuel Macron's party looks like it's coming around fifth, close to the Green Party. Wow. Yeah, so it's that's quite a, and a, Le Pen, a fall, isn't it? And Le Pen has fallen as well relative to recently. I mean, if you compare these results against 2015, 2015, France was a completely different country where the two parties that we were talking about, that centre ground, actually did relatively well. But the regional elections are thought of as the real midterms in France. And if this is any indication of what's going to happen in the French presidential elections next year, it's really all up for grabs. It's, it's quite unclear what way it's going to go, who might end up in the last two rounds and what potential candidates might emerge. So we've got kind of the return of the centre in Europe. We've also got, for example, like Mario Draghi is the Prime Minister of Italy. You know, a mm. more centrist person you couldn't have. Uh, in, in in Britain as well, you know, you have uh, recently there's the Chesham and Amersham by-election. Yes, I'm, yeah. I enjoy a good punt on politics and by-elections. Of course you do, Kev. <laughs> and I swear I did not see that one coming at all. Like, I was unbelievable because, the, you know, the Liberal Democrats is led by Ed Davey, uh, the guy who I've came, actually never heard of him. Exactly. He came second in the previous leadership election. And I guess he was the only person left to become leader. So it's <laughs> it's not really, you know, the, the Liberal Democrats aren't exactly a dominant force. People argue that it's something to do with HS2 because HS2 is going through the constituency. HS2 is what? Sorry, HS2 is the high-speed rail going from London eventually to Manchester, but stage one goes through Birmingham. It saves, I think, 20 minutes off your time from London to Birmingham and half an hour maybe to Manchester. But it's it's very controversial because it goes through all the kind of greenfield sites, of which there's relatively few in Britain because it's quite... It's quite populated. Yeah. Quite populated, quite filled But up, it's yeah. quite funny. I'll segue there. Rory Sutherland, who was on this show not so long ago, mm. was talking about the world, the difference between the world run by engineers and a world run by marketers. Yes, yeah, yeah. And the HS2, is that what it's called? Yeah. He said he's a great example of a world run by engineers so that they will spend four, five, whatever it is, billion pounds on a train that will go just slightly faster than the trains that they have. 
so that you will go from Manchester to St Pancreas in 26 minutes faster than you would have done. And Rory was saying what would have made the journey much more interesting was to have free Wi-Fi for everybody and the top supermodels, both male and female in the world, serving Chateau Petrus to everybody for half for the price. price yeah. And it's a really good thing. It's the idea of like, do people actually really want to go any faster in this world? You know, I mean, I mean, I'm all for trains and I'm all for this, but like sometimes when engineers take over yeah. and get off on the fact that you know we could create this system that you will We're be pushing the envelope. Yeah, we'll be, yeah, we, yeah. We, we will be in London twenty minutes faster. Wait, another, like, I know this is another segue, but. Uh, there's a real divide in Britain around trains and buses. You know how some people, there's a political and ideological divide around some people would say when they see all this kind of investment in trains, they say, well, I'm not going to benefit from that. You know, the guy in Bolton yeah. isn't going to really benefit from being able to go to London a lot quicker because he's going into Manchester. If that, he's probably working in Bolton. You know, it's the kind of town versus urban areas, but connecting two massive urban metropolitan areas 20 minutes quicker it doesn't really yeah. do much for that demographic that we've been focusing on you know for for the last number of years and that's but, why but that seat amersham and Chesham, Chesham yeah, yeah yeah i mean that was from its inception was a conservative seat yeah and this is for the first time the lib dems and the lib dems are you know the also ran party right now i mean people are yeah. thinking about the rise of the greens in the uk that, that i mean the last couple of electoral cycles the greens have have risen steadily in the middle of the cycle and then just been squeezed out by the larger parties because they have this first past the post system which is quite good at squeezing out small parties basically but uh yeah the lib dems very surprising and but that does reflect what's happening or at least some sense of this idea of the center ground maybe it's too early to write it off i mean the Swedish Social Democratic Party looks like they might have another election in Sweden because the, the government has collapsed partly on this, uh, interesting, conveniently enough, compared to here on, on a bill around housing. But, you know, who's going to win that election? So, tell me, I, did, I didn't know that. So that yeah, they have a bill around housing saying, let's build more houses. It's, it's, it's on um, uh, rent control, in fact. So they wanted to actually soften the rent controls, as far as I understand, and the left party pulled out and the government is now collapsing. But, okay. Mm, but interesting. Le the left is in the kind of far left party, but the real threat to them is the moderate party, which is again the same. Ooh, sort you of, don't want to really be part of the moderate party, do you? It's like, what do you say? Well, I'm kind of moderate. About it. <laughs> Frankly, I'd quite like to be in the moderate party, but I think it doesn't say. So, so do you think this idea, I, I come back to it, is are we seeing the return of the centre? I, I think there are, what has happened over the last couple of years is a reshaping of politics into a new dimension, you know, where there is the existence of these cultural axes. But that economic axis, it's still there. If you look at the, the most recent UK uh, local election results, the best predictor of the change of voting behaviour was around home ownership. So that's a that's a big, important issue. But Brexit is no longer predicting these changes. It's kind of done its job. It's taken things to a certain level and now things have kind of slowed down. So so there's areas in Britain which have, you know, which are clearly now more conservative, which the Conservatives now are more likely to hold. But that's it. There's kind of, it's almost like there's no more changing really so, it's a, so that that idea of the great big national flag waving python on the beaches that's done it's over it, and it, now we settle back into something that looks and feels a little bit more like maybe 
five, six, seven years ago. Sort of. I mean, I wouldn't say that the, the far right are gone or anything. They're kind of, they're now established as a significant force within politics, but they're not continuing to rise. I mean, in the last two or three years, and in spite of, you know, in, during COVID, the, they had a clear argument in relation to kind of probably being the only parties who are very opposed to restrictions. Um, they haven't increased. They've stabilized very quickly. So it's it's like they have their subset of the population now, and it's not really going to, it doesn't seem like it's growing. And in fact, as we said, it's the centre that's kind of having a little bit more of a... So, so of a, in the UK, in Italy, in Germany, and in France, we're seeing more coalescing around what used to be the mainstream than the extremes. John? So can it be argued then that the last four or five years has been a little bit too exciting? In politics, you know, with the <laughs> likes of, you know, even and we could take in America, you know, with all those Trump and all the loons there. And then they vote for Biden, a more of a steady eddy. I mean, a real moderate centrist Joe Biden, right? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, so, look, there's, there's clearly an appetite for the centre, for the moderate. It's yeah. not, not going to disappear. Everyone cool the jets a little bit. You know, there's appetites. You know, everyone wants their little... I've, lots of people like different things and clearly there's yeah. an appetite for the moderates. Well, know? I mean, if you think about it, you know, it's like, what, what have Liberals ever done for us? Well, the vote, <laughs> uh, gay legislation, home ownership, uh, extraordinary amount. Every single social democratic legislation has been brought by the Liberals. Yeah. You know, by Liberal people, not by extremists, you know. Yeah. So I guess what the Romans have done, I mean, the Liberalism has created the societies that we live in yeah. and we shouldn't forget that. They, they, they've not been... Ex- created by extremists, you know, they're by liberals, by wishy-washy centrist dads like you and me, John. That's the <laughs> Tell us what's going on, because we've got this, we've got this bellwether in Ireland. By the way, if you're not Irish, we might just get a little bit paddy on you here and talk about a an election that's coming up in Dublin South Central, isn't it? Uh, Dublin Bay South, yeah. Dublin Bay South, sorry. Yeah. Tell me, okay. God, it's really niche now. This is, yeah, 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 yeah. Very yeah. leafy, affluent constituency with a mix of more working class areas closer towards the city. Overall, I mean, the, the, the two most popular parties in Ireland right today are Sinn Féin and Fine Gael. And over the last year, on, on the back of the rise that Fine Gael had on the back of COVID, a kind of a COVID bounce that they had, they've kind of tried to man reveal a politics of polls, basically, between Sinn Féin versus Fine Gael. And clearly going into this by-election, Fine Gael are definitely making um, sounds to suggest, well, if you don't vote for us, then you could have Sinn Féin. And that kind of fear effect that's working between the two. And you can under- you can see why that's a, a useful tactic. Over that year, those two parties collectively haven't actually grown in- together. So That's interesting. Yeah, so the, the 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 extremes haven't grown in Ireland, which is interesting. And and I have to say, I didn't expect that because I thought to mm-hmm. some extent that this tactic might work and it has worked obviously in some other countries previously, but it hasn't really had that impact. And, and it seems to be noisier though, the extremes. Well, I, de- I mean, they definitely are, but the, the, the centre ground has still got that substantial, significant vote. Mm. I mean... Yeah, we can talk about Sinn Féin separately. There's kind of issues around Sinn Féin which are quite interesting separately, but that middle ground hasn't really gone away. And what's interesting as well about the by-election is that we actually have a preferential voting system that, in effect, if you want to avoid the extreme party getting into government, it is the case that the most effective thing to do is to vote for the opposite extreme. In fact, the most effective thing you do 
down your ballot is to vote for the, the party closest to that extreme party and then work your way down the ballot further away from it. So like mm, right. and Irish yeah, people yeah. do vote quite, quite Irish people tactically. vote very tactically. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean it's quite it's quite possible that that sort of campaign effect might not actually have a huge impact in fact. Um and so what do you think now are the driving issues? We've talked about housing and housing is the key issue it seems but what else is going on? Um I think both within the center and the right and in, within the left because I think you've got very interesting ideas about what's going on within the left as well. Yeah, I, th- I mean if I could just say one thing about the housing thing because the housing thing is quite interesting because while I've mentioned what's happening within the center over the past year the those that are in rented accommodation are quite steadily declined in support for the governing parties. At the start of the year, it was around 39%. And then the latest polls show that around 22% actually support them among renters. So there's definitely a dynamic in relation to home ownership in Ireland that reflects also what I mentioned in relation to the UK, that kind of realignment around mm-hmm. homeowners and non-homeowners. But the left is quite an interesting dynamic, as I said. So within the left in Ireland, it's, it's a little bit different to other countries in that you seem to have two groups of people on the left. On the first case, you have people on the left who kind of trust the system. They believe politicians are, are quite trustworthy. They don't believe corruption is prevalent. They believe in tax and spend, which is an interesting uh, antecedent of that. Uh, and they tend to vote the Labour Party or the Social Democrats or um, not really people for profit, but those kind of parties and the Green Party as well. And then on the other hand, you have people on the left who don't believe politicians to be trustworthy, who believe that corruption is widespread and consequently perhaps aren't all that enamoured with the ideas of tax and spend because if you don't believe in the system, then how could you possibly believe with that (laughs) in that mechanism of, oh yeah, sure, I'll give you more taxes and I'll assume that that is going to be spent more appropriately. Even if you might be in favour of redistribution, you might not feel that the system itself... Anyway, the point is they vote for Sinn Féin. So would you find that as the more revolutionary left? So you've got like the evolutionary left who believe in the system and the natural pace of progress. And then you have the revolutionary left who actually don't believe in the system. They believe the system has to be destroyed in order to recreate. Is that what we're talking about? I mean, you could, I mean, people for a profit might go a little bit closer to that. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, I'm talking about quite generally speaking, if you, uh, there's a, there's a good polling question asked in the last general election about whether people believe politicians to be trustworthy or most politicians would be trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And by a ratio of two to one, most pe- uh, people don't believe politicians to be trustworthy. That's really so high. It's so the average the average punter doesn't trust any politician. No. And is, this is, is one that of, just an Irish thing or is that... I think, yeah, no, that is, that is something that exists in lots of different countries right. as well. And yeah. I think it's a really important point because when it comes to campaigns, a lot of politicians approach campaigns as if the public trusts them, as if all right, I'm going to promise this, this and this, and they're going to believe these promises. But actually there's so much cynicism out there towards politicians that they need to, I think they kind of need to modernize their approach towards to the extent to which they're going to start promising things and whether they're not going to happen. I wonder, is that a a legacy of drain the swamp Trump? Well, I mean, there's, I think to be honest with you, the swamp actually gets drained far too often in my view. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. an interesting point. Explain that one. Yeah, so I think there's an interesting, and this is coming from, as a practitioner, I've worked in political parties and studied how political parties operate a little bit. So what's happened over the last 20 or 30 years is that the power in a political party has moved from the kind of permanent general secretary building of staff who will kind of work. <laughs> the swamp. 
Yeah, the swamp, <laughs> I guess, right? So people who would have permanent jobs for political parties, yeah. the general secretary, they'd all have their salaries because you would have had math memberships of these parties and those would have paid for those general secretaries and those 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 HQs and stuff like that. It's moved from there to the leaders. So the the nowadays the number of staff that leaders of political parties and the politicians have is far in excess of those that of the HQ staff. And that's where the the staff has gone. That's where the power has gone. But the problem with that is, is that when a leader changes, as we know, like with a lot of parties, how long does a leader last? Maybe two or three years on average. Mm -hmm. The staff are all gone. So you have completely new people running every individual election over and over. And there's no real legacy of understanding how do you run an election? So they seem to me to make the same mistakes over and over, or at least in my own experience. It's just that I, I remember... There was a period where I happened to be work. I was in a UK general election, uh, general election in Ireland, general election in Northern Ireland, Australian, and then uh, another UK election, all in the space of two years. And it was all new staff running these elections every time, coming up with the same sorts of things, the same ideas. Let's pr- let's have our list of things we're going to promise to the public, and then just hope that because that's the way it's always done. And I guess. If you're if you're new to something, I guess you're always going to do it the same way that people have always done it. So you think that there's no real ability in the political system because the staffers, the the lifers, who would maybe be watching trends and taking longer term views about how to evolve a political party, are being elbowed out by the we've got four years to change the world, people. Yeah. And the four years to change the world, people are running campaigns that are basically a carbon copy of the last one. Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, we're going to try something completely new, different. And do you think this when the Shinners, when the Shinners say, you know what, we're not even going to talk about property tax? Because this is quite interesting because Sinn Féin yeah. is a left-wing party and all left-wing parties should be in favour of property tax because it's the most significant redistributive tax that there is because yeah. rich people own property. Like yeah. this is very simple. And poor people are poor because they don't own assets. And if they did own assets, they wouldn't be poor, right? So you tax property, and yet Sinn Féin is against it. And is that, do you think, because they figured out the electorate don't care about what they are being told at the hostings? I think Sinn Féin is a much more efficient political party in Ireland, and it is run top-down, HQ style. It's okay, a, so, so it's different to the rest of them. It is, yeah. It's, it's, it, they have a permanent sort of establishment, and... Sinn Féin is run differently, is run more efficiently. Some of the things that they do, you, you recognise them as being relatively more intelligent things, I guess, more strategic. In relation to the property taxing, I think whether by intention or otherwise, it definitely plays up to that subset of the population that doesn't believe, uh, you know, I mean, the, the proportion of people that don't want to pay property tax vast exceeds the support of the left. You know, there's lots of left-wing people who don't agree with the idea of paying property tax. And again, it's very strongly related to those perceptions of corruption and trustworthiness and all that sort of stuff. Those people that say, I'm not going to pay this tax or I don't like the idea of paying tax, if perhaps their assumption is that the money already isn't really being spent very well or the idea that that it might be uh, misused in a corrupt sense or otherwise. But you know, what actually worries me when it comes to legacy of the water tax issue, right, yeah. is that so many areas of taxation, which should be policies of the left or centre left, have now been excluded, have been impossible to execute in this country. That 
you know, we are back to basically a tax system that we had, we've always had, which is basically income tax and corporation tax and VAT. Yeah. But there's no way in which we will change behavior through the tax system because it's so hard to implement tax changes. Is that a legacy of the of the water the tax water, debacle issue, whatever you want to call it? The water charges is a great example of all of this, right? Because it was a manifestation of that sort of idea of people didn't feel that their tax increases had anything to do with, you know, the system itself. I mean, a lot of at, at the time, a lot of the money was going into paying bondholders. Yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. Mm. And so, and, and appropriately, people said, screw that. Yeah. But as a general rule, the idea that you would actually introduce taxes, which would be on things like usage of water, which makes complete sense. It, yeah. I mean, to me personally, it, it makes a lot of sense to introduce all these sorts of things. Yeah. But it's very difficult to introduce them. Unless you can get that wider trust, I think. And I think that trust, that's why I was saying that at the start, that I think this trust issue is so much more important than politicians might recognize. That when they go to the hustings and when they start saying, I'm going to promise a 15 minute city or whatever the latest thing is, nonsense is, right? <laughs> recognize that most people don't believe that stuff. There was a great polling question done by Morak, in fact, before the last general election, which asked people the extent to which they uh, would uh, use the things that were promised to them. Uh, I don't think the word promised was used, but the extent, election pledges, I think, will, they let, the extent to which that would influence their vote. And among those that are age 18 to 34, the majority did say that, that they, would rec- they would listen to those sorts of things. But anyone who'd been through a few elections had no recognition for those things, had just paid no attention. And when you get to 65 and over, they pay zero attention to any election promises at all because it's a learning process that people have. And I think it's actually, I think we've thought about the public in a very negative way. You know, mm. when I've worked in politics, we kind of think, oh, they don't, you know, they're idiots. Like if they, if only they'd read our manifesto, you know, then they'd really see yeah. that we were the guys. That we were the greatest people since sliced bread, yeah. But actually the idiots are the, are the strategists and the political parties in some respect, because think about the manifestos for the most recent Irish general election, the 2021. I can't. Well, Can was, you? was COVID no. in that? No. Like, was, you know, was that part of that manifest? No, because COVID didn't exist then, right? So it's quite reasonable not to have all these promises under the assumption that other things are going to happen. I mean, the 2016 one, Brexit happened only a couple of months later and just completely yeah. ran over all these promises about tax cuts and about um, what was that? What's that tax that we pay uh, apart from PAYE? The the, the U uh, USC yeah. USC that yeah. was a huge thing in the 2016 campaign. Yeah, and now it's probably <laughs> who cares, right? Yeah. Uh, so the 2007 Irish general election, you know, what were the promises made within two years? The country it was, was bankrupt. Bankrupt. Yeah. So so um, I I understand. Like the more you go through these elections, the more you hear people saying, right. Here's my 20 year plan for what's going to happen to the Irish economy. It's just a complete nonsense. Yeah, no, it's funny. I've always said that economists, anybody who tells you what's going to happen in 20 years, tell me what's going to happen in 20 weeks. Yeah, yeah. That's a much more accurate and demanding forecast mm. than, you know, the, you know, you see these books, The World in 2050. I don't care. Like, it's, <laughs> it's all spoofy. No, but actually, just on that point, though, uh, and again, another little aside, oh. you, know, you have to look in 20-year terms when it comes to climate change and the Green New Deal and all those yeah. kind of stuff. So you have to. No, but I'm just saying is that 
the easiest forecast to make is the one that's really far away. Yeah. Well, the true, hardest true. forecast no, guess, to make is the point. one that's actually in the next couple of months. So before we go, we have this by-election. It's going to be a referendum on the government. You know what's coming. Yeah, now, you see, you? when you said <laughs> forecast, I was like, oh, Jesus. I yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, no, but no, but like you, you were saying that you, you, you quite like a tipple on the uh, on the politics and, do, and whatever. Yeah, yeah. How do you think it's going to fall? And do you think there could be any surprises? And do you think it will matter a damn? By the first of August, will we care what happened? Well, I'd say we probably won't care, to be honest with you. So it's that last one, but by elections are really hard. I mean, this is the Lib Dem by-election mm. was also particularly difficult. And one of the reasons why things could be more difficult in by-elections is when turnout is low. The lower the turnout, and this is a really good rule for elections, is the lower the turnout, the more wrong the polls are likely to be. And there's no polls at the minute for this particular by-election. But the reason for that is because the volatility starts to emerge because it's not just about what does the public think, but it's who is more motivated to vote who actually yeah. wants it more and we've never been able to try to measure that so i'm i'm running around the houses trying to avoid answering the question so i will admit right <laughs> who i have betted on in this by-election right so at the start of it i'll give you some of the candidates are james gagan is the Fine Gael candidate uh, ivana bachik is the labor candidate lynn boylan is the Sinn fein candidate so at the start of this and I'm only mentioning them. There's there's many more, but I'm mentioning them three because I think they're probably the three that are the most likely to win. Um, there's the Green candidate as well, and there's the Social Democrat candidate, but I don't think they have as much of a chance. I did put uh, when James Gagan was on a three to one. I did put money on him then, and then he went in, and then I saw Vanna Bachik's odds went out to four to one. And I thought she's actually good odds at that, so I put money on her. <laughs> And now I'm looking at the odds. So I've this is I have to admit, each way bet. I've made I've made a mess at this one, right? Because Lynn Boylan does have a good chance here as well. But that all depends on her being able to turn out her vote. Sinn Fein have a much better party op- operation in relation to GOTV. I don't think any other political party in Ireland is at the same level of they as they are. That is in terms of identifying your voters and on the day turning those people out and only contacting those people on the day. To tell them to vote. So saying, look, we have, we know we have five thousand yeah. people who can swing this for us, who will actually turn up and you and bash on every single one and of every those single, and you get them all out. and you say, oh, today's polling day. And the reason why that's important is because there's been so many academic papers on campaign effects and, and what you can do in campaigns, but that's the only thing that we know for certain has an impact. To knock on the door, yeah, to remind to remind your own personal voter that it is polling day. It increases their chances of voting by uh, about eight percent on average, and there's been hundreds of studies on this thing. Kev, before we go, can I just ask you about your your trade, the polling trade? Oh, yeah. Okay, disgrace. And no, no, listen, <laughs> listen. As an economist, I cannot lecture anyway because we are, have hardly covered ourselves in glory. This podcast, notwithstanding, clearly, but over the years, we, when we've chatted, we've chatted uh, about a trade on the defensive. Yeah. You know, that has made some big errors on some of the very big calls uh, for a variety of statistical reasons and whatever. How do you think or where do you think the polling game is at the moment? Well, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a move from face-to-face to online. So I guess today online polling is a lot better than it used to be because we have smartphones now. So there used to be a problem where 
over 65s were a particular area that people didn't uh, have smartphones and or didn't have computers and stuff like that. So you couldn't really, I mean, particularly the one demographic that was impossible to get was the old Fianna Fáil, rural, low, like, you know, yeah. not really, someone who didn't necessarily have a third level, but kind of, but always turned up to vote. Whatever. These people, but all, absolutely always, always turned, turned up, up to, up to vote. vote. Yeah. 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 And one of the, actually one of the variables that I include in all my polling is religious adherence, because that's a fantastic predictor oh, of someone's me. likely to, to vote. Yeah. Because someone who's a weekly mask goer, is much more likely to vote. And sometimes they're the types of people that you miss in public opinion polling because they might be a little bit more reticent about giving their opinions and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, it's moving to online. And one of the differences there is now it's a game of stats. So whether you're using propensity score matching and weighting and all these kind of fancy ways of trying to make sure and measure the polls, to make sure that those, those numbers are represented. Because door knocking uh, actually perform particularly badly in the Brexit referendum. And that's why in the UK, they don't do much face-to-face anymore. It's all online. And they're all talking, they all kind of work quite collegiately, in fact, over there in relation to trying to figure out all the different problems of online polling and how to kind of resolve all those things. So I think it is going online. It's just, uh, it's just, uh, it's trickier. It's not as straightforward as here's a thousand people. It's, there's a lot more detail and how exactly are they getting, how exactly are they kind of weighting these things and stuff. Now, just to conclude, if we are right that the centre shouldn't be written off oh, yeah. and it may well come back and there's evidence that's coming back and that evidence is again a massive, massive cleavage between the com- the commentaries now who are all up in arms about the extremes and yeah. the fact that the actual punter themselves might be quite chilled about things, right? If we are right that the centre comes back, what does it mean for Brexit, Scottish nationalism, all those big isms that are going on in the UK, which are bigger than our isms right now? Wow, that's a huge question. Um, Always the way to go out in the big question. Yeah. Um, I, th- I mean... Scottish nationalism is probably the first one. And I think that, I mean, this is my, my own personal view on some of these things, like a United Ireland and Scottish independence. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not far away I'm from each other. I'm much less likely to believe that either are going to happen in, a, in the short period. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't, I think Scottish independence is much harder because Britain's outside the European Union. I mean, all those debates that they had mm. around what happens are going to be just flipped right back on that campaign whenever it happens. And Irish unity, I think that's, I think if you look at the polling numbers, while it has increased support for it, it's only increased within the, within a kind of a subset of the population. There's still a very large middle ground, very large soft unionist vote. Demographically, people talk about how the demographic changes are happening there. And sure, there's almost 50-50 on Catholics and and Protestants, but it's actually the Catholics that aren't as in favour of United Ireland. I mean, it's only a subset of them are actually in favour of it. To convince all the rest to, to change that, especially when Catholics are becoming much wealthier in the North, uh, I think might be more difficult than it might seem. Um, and I think the disruption that it would require, uh, the prospect of um, violence, not just in Northern Ireland, but also being brought down onto this part, which has happened every time this question has actually arisen, mm. uh, is quite significant. Uh, and I think... Our support down here as well isn't even as locked on. I mean, I did a poll only the weekend, 51% were in favour of United Ireland. It's about 15 or 20% undecided and a good 30% uh, were opposed to it. I don't think that would survive any prospect of violence 
at all either here. So I take a much more cautious view of the prospect of United Ireland. Um, so I, I, that's what I think. I know that's no, it's very interesting. Ballgame. I think it's a really, it's a really good place to end this podcast because if the centre is coming back, then the nuance, the texture, the subtleties, the ambiguities come back into play. Mm. And the, you know, it's as uh, they say in India, in the dark, all cats are grey. And we all live in the grey. So let's leave it there. To all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without your support. It means a huge amount to us. Also, all your feedback, your suggestions, your comments, our comments to you, our replies to you, really is the essence of the whole thing. So, again, thank you very much. And for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David Michaels. Flimsy staying slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident we offer a lifetime warranty. So elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.